So it's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. This also is God's holy word. For this reason, starting from, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. For your word is clear. For, Father, your word is authoritative in our lives. And, Father, we thank you for this gospel message. We pray, Father, that we would cherish it. And we thank you, Father, for the reminder about how your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward that uh, the church testifies to the world, yet it also testifies to the angelic hosts of this message that they knew nothing about. Father, we pray in thanks that though the angels had no hope for forgiveness for those who have fallen, that you have given this hope to sinful humans, that we have the opportunity, that there is such a thing as salvation for humans who have fallen in sin. We thank you, Father, for this message. We pray that no, no one would take it for granted. We pray, Father, and thanks that you have promised us righteousness apart from works, that you have promised it to us, that we would receive it by faith. Thank you, Father, for this great news of the gospel, that sinners can be received as righteous in your sight only because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, this good news of the gospel would bear fruit in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would teach us your ways. And we pray, Father, that if any are here who have not embraced this simple message, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work. Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Sometimes you only realize the good that you have when others marvel at it. I think about the time when a friend of mine back in college, he, uh, we were talking about siblings. He has two sisters. I have one brother. And I don't know how often I gave thanks to the Lord for the brother that I have. But 
he helped to remind me of that. He said to me, Frank, I wish I had a brother. I have two sisters. And here I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, how often did I thank the Lord that I have a brother? Perhaps it might be a simple thing such as having a sibling. Perhaps it might be that only child friend of yours who said, I wish I had a sister or a brother. And for, for you and for me, what we do is we fight and we argue with your brother and or your sister endlessly. And we never give thanks of, wow, this is a great thing that God has given me. This brother or this sister that I fight with all the time, it's only that I talk to a person who's an only child and they say, hey, you should be thankful because I prayed and prayed and received nothing. That was, of course, God's answer. Here, I hope you can see that this relates to the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you realize that the angels, though they were created as, as higher beings than us as humans, there clearly was a fall. In the garden, there was Adam and Eve who were created innocent. They were without sin. They had the ability to sin. They had the ability not to sin. And there was a serpent in the garden. So the, the fall of the angels must have come before the fall of the humans. And for the angels, there's no salvation. There's no hope for forgiveness for them. They've fallen, that's it. They're held in condemnation, ready to be condemned, ready to be thrown into the, the lake of fire. And it's only when we think about that that perhaps we should be thinking, wow, for humans, we have an opportunity to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. This is a simple message, but it is a great message. And only when we start thinking about those who cannot have it, the angels, they didn't come up with the idea and they longed to look into this good news as God was revealing it. And here we have the church bearing witness of this news and that you and I should be among all people those who embrace and cherish the good news of Jesus Christ because this indeed is a great message to sinners. Amen. Have you realized then the Lord's blessing upon you that he has given you the good news of the gospel and has commanded you to believe upon it for eternal life. Here in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul presents the glorious Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks about his beloved bride, the church. And this is a mystery. But this is a mystery made known to men. And a mystery is not something that we can... Uh, that, oh, a mystery is things that, that if only we try hard enough, by human effort, we can achieve it. No, it's a mystery because regardless of human effort and intelligence and wisdom, we can never attain to it. We can never, we can never grasp it. It's only by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that sinners can come to see their own need, my own need, your own need. And to see that everything that we need, everything that we lack, we have in Jesus Christ presented to us, that the very righteousness that God requires, he has provided to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Here, we see in this passage, Ephesians 3, verses 9 and 10, that salvation through Christ is God's manifold wisdom, hidden for ages, but now revealed through the church to the angelic hosts. Salvation through Christ is God's manifold wisdom, hidden for ages, but now revealed through the church to the angelic hosts. We have two points. 
the manifold wisdom of God hidden for ages past. Second, the manifold wisdom of God revealed. So the first point from verse 9, the manifold wisdom of God hidden for ages past. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here we think about the Apostle Paul and the stewardship that he has received. There in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So here as an apostle, he's been given the stewardship. A steward is one who, who is not the owner. He doesn't own it. He doesn't have the rights of an owner. He's been entrusted with something, and he is supposed to do something with it. Exactly what God has commanded him to do, to bear witness of this gospel to others. You and I are also stewards, not in the same way as the Apostle Paul, but we are stewards of the gospel. He has given it to us. He has entrusted it to us, not to conceal it, but to make it known. Here we, we think about how God in his wisdom kept his manifold wisdom hidden. God in his wisdom kept his manifold wisdom hidden. And here, sinful humans always seem to have problems with the wisdom of God. We don't like it because he is wiser than us. We don't know his ways. His ways are past finding out. And somehow we think that we ought to tell him what he needs to do. This is, this is exactly what happens when, when you think about the, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. What is coveting other than saying, hey, God, I don't like the cards I was dealt. I like his cards or her cards better than the cards that you dealt me. And this whole question about God's wisdom and his hiding it in ages past, it's the questions that begin with, why doesn't God just... God should do... It would be better if God... Have you ever asked these questions? Do you ever start thoughts in your mind with those statements? I'm going to tell you right now. They're, they're, coming, they're coming from the wrong place. It's coming from a heart of pride. It's coming from a heart of a pride that says, God, I, I know better than you. My, my wisdom is better than yours. Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Children, your parents, you must answer to. People of God, your bosses, you must answer to. The civil magistrate, we must answer to. To your, to your elders, you must answer to. God answers to nobody. Right. No one can say to him, hey, God, what are you doing? And if ever if someone's asking God, what are you doing? Right here, we realize we have no authority to, to ask that, to demand that of God. God has every authority. To demand that of us. What are you doing? He asked Adam in the garden. Where are you? Right? It's not as if God was lacking knowledge of where Adam was. He knew exactly where he was. Right? This was, if anything, a spiritual question. Where are you? His answer should have been, I am lost. And I'm spiritually dead now. My eyes have been opened. And here, there's, there's grief and misery for my sin. This is where Adam was. God in his sovereign will does as he pleases, but always according to his holiness and wisdom. And he answers 
to no one. He gives us his reasons. He gives us his truth. And we are called to embrace it. Think about the, the proverb 25 verse 2. It is a glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. It's God's glory that he concealed the matter of salvation through his son Jesus Christ. He realized that Throughout the Old Testament, he was, he was giving little snippets, uh, little, little previews, right? And you think about movies at the beginning, right? You have, uh, what are these called? These, these trailers. And, and apparently with these trailers, they realize it's okay if they, if they, they give you all the, all the, the ins and outs, the, the secrets of the movie, because they know you're going to watch it anyway, right? You're going to watch it anyway. And in the Old Testament, God is giving little snippets, right, about this good news that would be, that would be revealed in Jesus Christ, in the coming of His Son, who, who came in the flesh, who took upon Himself human flesh, but yet He is without sin. In Genesis chapter 15, we have a snippet of that with our father Abraham. It wasn't as if Abraham was a righteous, upright man. He was a descendant of idol worshipers. They, they worshiped a multitude of gods. And it wasn't as if he said, you know what, out of all these people, I found you to be upright and righteous, so I'm going to save you. No, he, he called him out of the house of his father of idol worshipers. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that message has not changed. This is why in the New Testament in Romans, we're told that Abraham was the father not only of those who are of his blood, but of those who are of the faith of Abraham, trusting in Jesus Christ. Here, we think about how in our sinful hearts there is the willingness and the desire to question God, even to accuse him. People I ask, well, what about this good news? For those who came before Christ, what about my ancestors who, who lived before this time? Because obviously there were a whole lot of people who lived and died before the time of Christ. But here, we need to ask ourselves, you and I have been given the good news of the gospel. You're commanded to believe upon it. Don't be asking so much about what happens to people who came before Christ. You are commanded to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We're reminded that this God created all things. There in verse 9. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? This should be a humbling reminder. Who do you think you're questioning? This is the God who created all things. He created all things of nothing. He created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them dwells. He is the one who creates you anew in Jesus Christ. That you who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has raised you up, given you a new heart, that you can believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. So we ought not to question him. We ought to trust him. We ought to obey him. We ought to live for him. What was once concealed has now been revealed for all to hear, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the second point, the manifold wisdom of God revealed there in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities 
in the heavenly places. Here is God's manifold wisdom. This is his wisdom, which is, uh, we might might translate it as variegated, marked by variety, marked by diversity. Think about God's wisdom. The angels would have witnessed his, his wisdom in creation. And if you study the sciences, if you think about biology and how, how ecosystems fit together, right? Here, this, is, this is how we understand problems, right? When I lived in South Carolina, there was this plant called kudzu. It was a, it was a plant that, that took over, right? It was taking over South Carolina. It, you know, someone thought, hey, in order to protect uh, against erosion, we need to have some kind of a spreading plant. So someone took it, I think it was from Japan, and they, they brought it to South Carolina, to the, to the south. And, and this is where ecosystems, right? Don't mess with ecosystems, right? It's the same, same thought in California. Someone thought, hey, in central California, it'd be great, I set up this hunting safari. They went to uh, Russia, and they got these, these uh, Russian boar, and they brought them over, and they let them loose. And you think, hey, this is a great idea. No, it wasn't, right? You have some new, new uh, part in the ecosystem that's completely damaged. You think about how many, how, many, how many crops are damaged in California because of these wild hogs that are running around, right? God in his, in his wisdom and creation and providence, right? God's wisdom is manifested. He placed people in certain places in certain times. He placed animals and plants in certain places on certain continents. And we have God's wisdom manifested in the salvation of the elect. And of all things, this is the greatest manifestation of God's wisdom. Here, you can think about some of the questions that trouble men. We read about it earlier in Job 25, verse 4. How then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? That's the question. Hey, we have to ask some of these questions, right? Yet... (coughs) People come up with horrendous answers. Well, uh, this child uh, is sinful because of its environment, right? So, hey, because of its environment, this child is, is a sinner. But the question is, who, who taught this child a year and a half old to strike his sibling in the face? Right? Did, he, did he see his parents do that to each other? No. It was all in his heart, right? He wasn't taught how to do that doesn't answer the question. Is that the environment? Here we think about how, how can he who is born of a woman be pure? There's only one way. Is that you don't have a sinful father and a sinful mother conceive. It's, it's the conception by the Holy Spirit in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way that, that uh, a man who is born of a woman can be pure. Is that there, there wasn't ordinary generation. You think about this high cost of ransom. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 9. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Here, you think about how costly the ransom is. The only payment that can be made because our, our God is not a petty God. You think about the, the, the gods of the nations. That they are satisfied with these petty offerings. 
Our God owns every ounce of property, every piece of land, any form of wealth, everything that he has, it's his. Everything that Elon Musk has already belongs to God. All, all of it is God's. Elon Musk cannot claim any of it as his own. Just as you and I cannot claim any of our wealth as our own. God owns all of it. He owns, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can't use that wealth to say, God, I'd like to use this to pay for my ransom. All that, he says, it's already mine. And besides, that's not the payment that we need. Here we have God's holy character. He is holy and just. That sin must be paid for in full. Sin must be paid for in full. God is not a God who simply says, you know what? We'll sweep that in the rug. We'll let it go. That's not the way he works. He is perfect in justice. He will not accept petty bribes. Yet, God is also merciful. He loves sinners. He can't simply overlook it. You think about this characteristic. In, a, in, a, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. If God punished sin, man would justly make his payment in hell for in eternity. But what about his mercy and his grace? We're told that he is one who is compassionate and gracious, yet he's also holy and just. And for, for the angels, that's the question, right? You ask, well, well, they have wisdom, yet they don't have the gospel. It wasn't as if they came up with this idea, hey, God, why don't you send your son to take upon himself human flesh, to die on a cross, so that these humans can be saved? It's not as if the angels came up with that. They were, they were the ones left wondering, how is this going to happen? How can God be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ? Here we think about what really happened on the cross. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is, through Jesus. Think about that scene for a moment here. Zechariah chapter 3, you have Joshua the high priest. He has soiled clothes. And then you have Satan accusing him, hey, that is the high priest and, and he is filthy. Right? And, and that is exactly what Satan does to God's people. He is the accuser. That is his name. He's the slanderer. He's the accuser. And, and you ask, wasn't this also a, a little preview of what the Lord Jesus would do for us. That you have on one side, you have Satan accusing us, saying he is unclean, he is a wicked man, she is a wicked woman. And, and then you have Jesus right there. 
that God is the one who takes away the filthy garment from us. He gives us the festal garments. He clothes us. Psalm 132, he clothes his priests with righteousness. That we are his priests. We are a royal priesthood. He clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He gives us a new turban. I, I don't have a turban. Turban would be great, right? So he gives us a new turban. He washes us clean. It's not of dirt. He washes us clean from our, our own sin. This is what God is doing for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. This is the best trait that there ever was. Right? Amen. You realize that sometimes, you know, I remember as a kid, this one guy said to me, hey, we like to trade these, these baseball cards, right? And, and afterwards, I figured, wow, that was a bad trade, right? He, he, gave, he, he took one of my best cards, and, and, uh, and he gave me this, this worthless one, right? But hey, there was never a concern about this with God. God, hey, God comes to us and says, hey, I, I got a trade for you. And, and do you think God ever takes advantage of his people? you think he ever pulls the wool over our eyes? No, when he covenants with us in his son, right, he gives us exceedingly great terms. It's not as if we could say, no, 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 God, uh, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'll take this. No, no, no. No, no, no. None of that. God gives us exceedingly great terms. Hey, let me take my son, send him, taking upon himself human flesh to die on the cross, the the shameful death of the cross. And, And then I will trade his perfect righteousness to you and that your sin goes upon him on the cross. That's right. And you ask, well, God, these terms aren't good enough. We ask, how could they possibly be better? How can he possibly give us better terms than that? There's no, there's no better terms that he can give us. We can't improve on it. Any, any change would be worse. And, and so he commands us that we would embrace the promises of the gospel. And you ask... Well, what about the church? What, what, what do we provide? The only thing that I provide is I'm, I'm pointing you to that message, that person of Jesus Christ. I, I'm, I'm one sinner telling another sinner where they can find true life. That's Jesus Christ. We don't have righteousness to give. We don't have righteousness to sell you. Right? If I were, I'd be a liar. I'd be a cheat. I'd be a usurper. I'm only pointing you to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, believe upon him, trust in him. Because he alone is your righteousness. He alone is your hope. Here you think about what the church is called to do. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The pillar and support of the truth. The church's role is it's to make known this good news of Jesus Christ. You think about all the things that the church throughout history has occupied itself, herself with. They were only distractions to what they were called to do. And that's the great commission to bring to the world, the watching world, this good news of Jesus Christ in all his glory. What God once concealed, he has commanded his bride, the church now, to herald to the end of the earth. So then when when God said he concealed it before and we say, hey, why did you do that? And then he says, now, go and take this to the end of the world. And then we say, no, we want to conceal it. 
Huh? Bear witness of this good news to others because it is good news to you. Here we think also about the impossibility of other means. The impossibility of righteousness through the law. Law keeping or any combination of it, faith and works, these are no ways of salvation. The Jews did not arrive at righteousness because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. This is Romans chapter 9, verses 31 to 32. God gave them plenty of time to see that righteousness could not come by the works of the law. Any form of man-centered self-improvement cannot achieve the righteousness that God requires. It's not as if we tell the world long enough, you know what, if you just try harder, if you, if you obey Christ's teachings, then we can have this righteousness. The answer is no. It can't be done. We always fall short. Not just by a little bit, we fall short by just, you know, great chasms. And the truth they see is that in Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he lived the perfect life. It, it's not merely the letter, it's the spirit of the law. We fall short of that. There's also the impossibility of man-centered philosophy to bring righteousness or unity or any of the like. So you have on one hand the Jews, the keeping of the law. They boast about the law. On the other hand, you have the Greeks and their philosophers. And the question is, they are going to establish heaven on earth. And the answer is, they couldn't. Right? You think about what's happening in our country regarding a democracy. And they ask, hey, wasn't this tried before the... The Greeks, they had a democracy. How long did that last? Right? We have to learn the same lessons. All of the attempts throughout the millennia could not produce righteousness or unity. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Lord Jesus promises that these two opposing groups, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, and whatever other opposing groups there are in this world, that he, the Jesus, our Lord, creates a new humanity. That the two become one. That, that you and I stop thinking of, hey, I am this. I am an American. I, I, am, uh, I am an Asian. Or I, I am a, I'm a man. Whatever distinctions there are, this greatest identity in this new creation is, I am new in Jesus Christ. I don't judge anything according to anything else because that is the highest identity that I have. And, and if you have any identity that's greater than your identity in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, that's your idol. Right? That is your idol. Staring right in the face of it. Don't believe the hype about man-made and man-centered teachings and philosophies. They promise great things and they deliver nothing. God alone saves through the gospel of his Son. That is your hope. That is my hope. We see that it's made known to the angelic hosts. Some people wonder, well, the angelic hosts, you, you look in, in Ephesians chapter 6, was it verse 12, that, that the principalities and powers refer, was referring to the evil fallen angels. The question is, is it referring to the holy angels? Is it referring to both the holy and the fallen angels, uh, or one or the other. It seems like in this situation is referring to the holy, unfallen angels, that they are the ones who benefit from this. That they always behold the face of God, 
yet they don't have the knowledge of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them, this was the prophets, they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look into this message. They desire to peer, peer into it. And it's because they have no hope of forgiveness. It's fallen man who has the benefit of it. And of course, this thing mentioned, it wasn't as if the angels came up with this brilliant idea. You know, God, we've got this plan. We know how this thing can figure, we can figure this out. Psalm 85, we're told that righteousness and truth meet, that justice was it, and peace kiss each other, that all of the characteristics, the attributes of God are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in God sending his son to die on the cross. And we ask, how can God be just and how can, how can God maintain his justice, his holiness? Well, sin had to be paid for. Sin had to be punished and it was punished. It was punished in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, he didn't punish, the fa- he didn't punish a father for his son's sins. He punished his own son for the sins of his people. Here we ought to understand it wasn't the angel's brilliant idea. It was God's design. And we're even told in the New Testament that the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed the wisdom of God. That this is God's wisdom manifested. That that this is God's solution for sinners. How can you be just and holy and yet also gracious and merciful to sinners and loving. And the answer is, it's in the person of Jesus Christ where God's wisdom is manifested for us. Here, we think about how the angels, angels are by definition messengers. They're servants of those who will receive salvation, that they often brought messages. Often it was some kind of message. Hey, do not fear, right? Uh, the, the person who, who gets confronted with an angel and turns ghostly white and, and, and is about to pass out. The angel's first message is do not fear, right? Don't, don't pass out, right? But you notice God doesn't send angels to tell people this good news of salvation. He entrusts that to sinful human beings. Have you ever noticed we had a we had a doula or a birth birthing coach, right? With both of our children, it was a lady that we hired to be a birthing coach. Notice that it wasn't a virgin woman, right? It wasn't a woman who never gave birth. It wasn't it wasn't a forty five year old man who's hey man, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you how to be I'm gonna tell you how to give birth here. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you how to give birth. Right? You know why? Because he has no experience in giving birth, right? This is this is this would be ridiculous, right? That somehow this this oh hey, sixty-five-year-old man, hey, I'm, I'm I've got the monopoly on the birthing coach industry. No, he doesn't. And so also here, it's not the angels who are sent to share the message of salvation, because they actually have no experience of the gospel. But he commands you and I to take this good news. We're told that the angels 
in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Yet they cannot speak experientially about the satisfaction and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you can. I can. We can tell others, this is who I was before Christ, and this is who I am now. This was me in pieces. This is me living the life, a worthless life. A life without purpose, a life without joy, a life without meaning. And then how all of those things come together in our Lord Jesus Christ. That suddenly, in Him, everything makes sense. It's as if you're trying to calculate the, the planetary movements of a system that revolves around the earth. And, and it's like, shoot, the numbers just don't seem to add up. It, it doesn't seem right. It, until you realize, oh, wait a minute. The planets revolve around the sun. That, that, wait a minute, my life was designed to revolve around the person of Jesus Christ and suddenly everything seems to make sense. Well, here, I was, I was trying to fight for and and accomplish and achieve my own happiness all the time. And, and the oddity is that the more that you and I fight and search and, and try to uh, obtain our own happiness, the less we have of it. And, and somehow the oddity is that when you and I are seeking to please the Lord Jesus, whom our life should revolve around, the greater happiness we will have. See, that's, this is where the, the world is saying, happiness, you are the one who has to seek it. The more you seek it, the less you'll have of it. Somehow the oddity is you, you, you seek to please the Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater joy and happiness and satisfaction you have in your life because your meaning comes that way. And you see also in this passage the great value of the gospel message that the angels have no salvation. The fallen angels are forever lost, awaiting their condemnation. They know it. This is the angels... When Jesus confronted them, they were cowering, saying, Has the time of our judgment come? They knew. It was, they, were, they were waiting. You know, no, it's not when Jesus came. It's when he will return that your judgment will begin. And here, you and I are reminded that we have a gospel message. And we're called to cherish Jesus Christ, who is the only hope for sinners. Only in Christ. May you have the very righteousness that God requires. Jesus alone saves. Trust in him. Trust in nobody else. Amen. May Jesus be exalted in your life and in mine. We go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your great power. That you are the one who raises us up anew. Father, what a testimony it is to the world. When sinners who are so different but have been created new in Jesus Christ... That there can be peace in Christ's church unity. That this is a testimony to the world, a testimony to the angels that your power is manifested. Father, we thank you that our Jesus is high and lifted up. That he's at your right hand. He even intercedes for us now. Father, we pray in thanks that you indeed are strong and mighty. That we are weak and dependent and we thank you for your provision for us. We pray, Father, that you would remind us of this great news that Jesus came to die for sinners and that he was raised from the grave, that death could not contain him, and that we look forward to our own resurrection. We thank you that he is one who created us anew. And Father, we thank you for your patience and your love for us. 
that though we continue to sin, that we have in Jesus an advocate, that he is the one who paid the whole price to set us free. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please turn in your hymnals to him. 232, we will stand and sing together, O righteous in the Lord rejoice. We'll stand and sing 232. Thank you. 